Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this episode. ElectroConf EU 2020 is going hybrid. ElectroConf EU is taking place in London, England, or wherever you are for the virtual track on the 9th and 10th of June, with training on the 6th through the 8th. For more information and to get your tickets, visit ElectroConf EU. Closure D will be held in Berlin on the 11th of June 2022. Closure D is a closure conference with national and international speakers. Talks will cover big data processing, asynchronous and reactive programming, closure script, and many other topics. The conference will be held in English. Tickets are on sale now, including supported tickets to help Closure D reach and support a more diverse audience by offering a contingent of free tickets to people from groups traditionally underrepresented in the closure community and in the wider tech community. If your company would like to sponsor Closure D, they have new packages lined up for recruitment, marketing, and sponsorship. And Closure D is always happy to expand their network and grateful for support. Visit closured.de for more information and to register. Codebeam Light Acarona is taking place in Acarona, Spain on the 11th of June. Celebrating 10 years since hosting an Erlang camp, Acarona is holding its first Codebeam Light. Tickets are available and are free, but the venue has limited capacity. And for those companies looking to help sponsor, email corona at codesync.global. Visit www.codebeamcorona.es to register or to find out more. Lambda Days 2022 has been pushed back until the 28th and 29th of July. Taking place in Krakow, Poland and online, two Lambda Days tracks will be run as hybrid tracks, combining both an in-person and virtual experience. Lambda Ladies, Lambda Days wants you. For every Lambda Lady in your group, everyone gets 10% off the price, up to 50% off the entire order. Visit lambdadays.org to register and to find out more. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that's how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us, we have Laura Castro. Laura, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? So I'm a professor at the University of A Coruña. Uh, for those who haven't heard about this small city, we are in the northwest part of Spain, so right above Portugal, and we're in the Atlantic coast. So when everyone says, oh, there must be a lot of heat and sun, well, not so much, a lot of rain as well. And I'm teaching now and researching using Erlan and Elixir for a number of years. And well, let's just leave it up there and we can pick it up if you want to hear more. Yeah, you again, you were on my radar from the various code beams and maybe even as far back as when it was called Erlang Factory at that yes, point. Indeed. So I've seen your name around, seen some of your presentations, wanted to get you on and talk because you're also involved in, as you said, the teaching and research. And it's not yes. just not just in industry, but also just pushing the bounds of what Erlang is potentially capable and useful for and getting new people converted to Erlang and functional programming as well 
as being on the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. For anybody who hasn't heard of that, it's a relatively new, and I'm sure we'll cover the topics in general at a high level and dig into some of the stuff you're doing. But I guess let's just start with you're doing Erlang and you're using it to teach. Was that your first functional programming language? Was that your first exposure? Where was your evolution in getting into Erlang and some functional programming? It was not the first, but I was lucky enough to be uh, exposed to Erlang during my, my computer science studies. So I'm a computer engineer by formation, by education. And so my first functional language, I think it was OCaml. We had a course with OCaml in the second year. And it was uh, already at that time was a lot of Java all around, a lot of C, of course, mainly to deal with the subjects uh, in, in operating systems and networking and that kind of stuff. But there was this subject and it was a compulsory subject. So everyone had to, to took it that tried to give us a little bit of other way of thinking about computing, about programming. And there were a number of, uh, we, we did a little bit of prologue as well, but the main, uh, the main core was, was OCaml. And that was, that was different. I mean, that's the first time I heard about recursion and uh, non-terminals and blah, blah, and those things that are very natural <laughs> for us in the, our day to day now. But even if it was only my second year, it was already hard. So now I, as a teacher, I am very aware of how difficult it is for people, the longer they are in the imperative world, so to speak, to change. And also how valuable it is to have that exposure early on, because it does. I mean, we hear it a lot of time and we say it time and time again, but it is true that it gives you a lot of tools to think about problems in an abstract way, in different ways to have those tools in your mind. So I try to bring that back from my early days and give my students that opportunity also to be exposed to other technologies that will help them definitely, no matter if they end up being a Java developer or an elixir one. So if that was your second year, did you go into your computer science, computer engineering background, having done some other programming and playing with stuff at least in that? Or did you start fresh and that was really... When you get into your second year, you're like, I've only had one year, but I've already been indoctrinated hard enough that OCaml <laughs> and functional programming is now completely foreign. Yes. Well, of course, I, I didn't have the feeling of having been indoctrinated, but of course, I realized that that was completely different. And it was, I mean, different enough that it was hard at that point, but also it was refreshing to actually discover that there were really lots of ways of programming, of thinking about reality and, and transforming problems into solutions, so to speak. But it was a, I was an atypical student. And of course, lots of women, and we are not a lot of women in, in computer science in general and in programming in general, but lots of women, we have this thing that we tend not to be the typical computer science student in the sense that lots of us, and it was my case, I didn't have a computer at home before before coming to the university. And and the, the contact that I had had with computers was when I was over to a friend's house and we were typing some history report or something like that. So just like a typewriter, more or less. I did have one programming course, like but it was a really brief thing, a one-month thing in basic and we I, I remember that we programmed something like a ticket vending machine or something like that but it was I mean as, as if you go uh, I don't know skiing or, or bowling one time with your friends and it doesn't define who you are and, and it didn't really catch with me 
in the sense of making me think, oh, yes, I want to do programming for the rest of my life. So in my case, studying computer programming, computer engineering was more of a practical decision. So I was into science, of course. I, I loved math and it was, I, I was good at math at school. But it was more of, of a, okay, let's see professionally what's going to be good, a good profession for having a good job in a few years. And of course, there were already people saying, oh, this thing with computers is going to blow up at some point. And it was, this was the late 90s. So it was, okay, yeah, the 2000 effect was not in the rear mirror yet. But yeah, people were starting to see that this was going to grow. And that was the thing that, well, my teachers and my family said, well, you can try this and see if you like it. And I literally had no further idea about programming and, and computer engineering at that point. And I, I have to say it was great for me. I really loved it. And I loved it in a really r wide range of ways. So I loved the databases, the courses. I really loved the programming and the algorithms and then the complexity. And uh, But I also really liked when we first uh, encountered object orientation as opposed to just the C pointers and then and all the, the memory <laughs> preservation and, and free and all that stuff. So it was... Discovering for me, discovering one thing after the other, and it was really a whole world. And I didn't really have anything really calling for me. So, and then it came this course on functional programming on my fourth year. And that was not a compulsory subject. It was one that I took out of the, the list that we could choose from. And I did go for that one because it was related to the OCaml course. And I hadn't had any other apart from that one in the second course. So I say, oh, that one was, I mean, I liked it. I want to go a little bit deeper. And at the beginning, it was a little bit hard because it was really theoretical, all the lambda calculus and all that stuff. But in the second half of the course, there was this teacher that later became my tutor and me, my PhD advisor. And he had just come back from Stockholm from attending one of the early Erlang courses that Ericsson gave for people outside Ericsson. And he had this really large pile of documentation <laughs> that he brought with him. And he was a really fresh teacher. He had, I think he had had his PhD three or four years before. So he was really into getting new things for students. So the practical stuff, the programming practices that we had to do at the lab, we did with Erlang. And that is when my mind was blown because it was so you had all these processes and the signals and stuff that we had had in the second year and the third year in C. And then this guy comes and say, hey, you can have processes and they can just send messages to each other. And C, you can have several terminals. And that's as if you have the several different physical machines talking to each other. And everything was so easy and so easy to understand. It was like... Why is not everyone using this? Come on. <laughs> and here I am, 20 years later, still preaching the same. <laughs> so why is not everyone? Of course, it's not a silver bullet. But that's when I fell in love with the technology, with the paradigm, because we did see some object orientation, but not so much the agent model that is most closely related to the foundation of Erlang. And... Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> that is when when everything started. <laughs> and I was wondering about your background and intro to computer science, because I know sometimes people are like, 
I had the compulsory high school course that I had to do or in our university it was like, if you're going into business or something, you have the compulsory like programming 101 kind of thing where it's like, oh, you take that, you take the lab because you kind of have to understand something a little bit more about computers than just writing up Word docs and Excel spreadsheets. So we're going to give you a little bit of exposure. That's what I was digging about coming in. So it was, it sounded like could be good. I have no real strong feelings either way, but sounds like it's job opportunities. And then by the time you get around towards the third and fourth year with your functional programming and you're like, okay, now I'm hooked. This has gone from exactly. being possible job opportunity to being hooked. And cause you're doing this now in academia, doing yes. research, doing stuff means you kind of have to love it. If you're going that far in that fringe too, and trying to teach it as well. So I didn't know if that background was, I kind of always liked building things and putting things together. And it was just like, wait, I can build things up and tear things down easily because it's software. Or if it's just, as you said, it's a career, could be good money, could be good job stability. And now <laughs> I love it. So it sounded like it was kind of the, the latter. It was the latter. Yes, yes. But I mean, I was a Lego kid. I mean, I did love to build stuff more than, uh, I know, uh, sports or just dolls. But indeed, I think that's, I remember one of the early feelings of learning how to program was, was that, that you said exactly. I mean, I can run this. I can write a few sentences and, and I can compile this and it will do things. I will do the things that I tell him to do. So yeah, I think that's a powerful feeling for many people, probably. So you get into Erlang, you're sold on this. You see a little bit of OCaml and you get the first exposure. That's going from Java, which has a type system, to OCaml, which is a Hindley-Milner, harder, more expressive type system, because everybody's like, ah, type stink. And you're like, well, type stink <laughs> in Java. Hindley-Milner type systems like Haskell, you either really love them or you really hate them, and you want to go pure dynamic. <laughs> you get to Erlang, which is still strongly typed, but it's a dynamically and strongly typed versus static and strongly typed, but it's like you have eight types nine types in Erlang because you have lists, integers, PIDs, and things like that, <laughs> and functions. Where was that evolution on the functional programming side and the types as well? Is is that something you were still like in the early days? Do you remember where you were falling in? Because there's things like Dialyzer and other things which try and add more refinements to the strongly typed system to give you more help up front. As you're looking at these these two extremes, which Java kind of sits in the middle of types, but you're you're learning different type systems along with the functional programming side, and you're getting the lambda calculus at the first part. By the time you get into this functional programming stuff, besides the Erlang and like this makes processing and concurrency so much easier, were there any other things that kind of clicked and registered that made okay, I like the functional programming side of it and not just the, I like the concurrency management side and not having to deal with pointers and memory allocation and everything else. <laughs> well, you see, there was, uh, when I presented my PhD, I got a question about something very closely related to this. Uh, so for, for a little bit of background, when I finished this functional programming optional subject that I took with this professor, Victor Gulias, who later came to be my PhD advisor, 
I had to look for an end-of-degree project. So the studies at the time, the uh, computer science or computer engineering, we, in Spanish, we have only one word for those. So, so I, I sometimes use one term and sometimes I use the other. But it was a five-year career. So by the time I finished that course, I had to look for my, my final degree project. And I went to this professor because he was really cool and, and really young. He was always supervising lots of students. It was like, mm, I don't know, he won't take me, but I really, really like this. So I really, really have to try. So I was really, really shy at the moment. It was, it might not be apparent because I became, as you said at the, at the beginning, a person that has been to a lot of speaking, speaking events and in the BIM community and, and outside. And if you will have told me that at the point, I would have said, no, you're crazy. I will never speak in front of that many people that you're saying. But anyway, <laughs> and so I was really shy, but my love for this newly discovered technology was so great that I, I picked up the, the courage and I asked, so is there anything that I could do with Erlang as a final degree project? And that's when I came in contact with, with research. And it was, I mean, a lot of people in academia that has research in relationship with the functional languages and stuff, they come from the purely, from the type word, so to speak, right? From Haskell and from OCaml. And there's a lot of research around types and, and all the things that we can do with them and, and the connections with concurrency. And, and I mean, we've seen a number of attempts to model with types the, the whole Erlang expressiveness that we have in terms of concurrency and, and processes and the like. But in that case, well, he proposed a really, really applied research. And of course, it had to be the, the case because I was not a PhD student. I was still undergrad. But there was this company in A Coruña that wanted to do a very unusual at the time system. So they had, and it was not appealing at all because this was risk management. But risk management in the sense of I have an accident, like there's a, a flood in a shop or a strike in the street or something that prevents my business from doing business. And because this company was growing a lot, they were actually buying lots of insurance policies from different vendors. It came this situation where they had so many things and they were not sure which one was better under uh, specific circumstances when something actually happened in the real world. And they were surveying the local community to see which companies could build a product for them to deal with that context. And by chance, they got in touch with my supervisor and he said, hey, there are a lot of companies that will say, I can do this in Java. I can do this in this brand new technology from Oracle. <laughs> but if you want me to try, I will do this in Erlang. And of course, they didn't know what Erlang was. He just told them that it will have uh, the the potential to really, really grow as they were expecting to grow. And of course, there was a part of modeling the reality of the insurance policies and the accidents in the real world and the coverage of the insurance policies. Those were all modeled as processes. And that was, I mean, that was part of my final uh, degree project to do that modeling and that prototype implementation. And then they were absolutely astonished by the idea and of course they were not technical people they were the people running the insurance department and they had to look for someone outside the company because people taking care of it within the company they didn't want to know anything about insurance it's like no 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 we don't want to do this so it was a, a combination of things like sometimes happens people have a need 
And nobody really, I mean, we the geeks sometimes are not really keen on certain areas of the real world and insurance. I cannot admit it was, it's a hard one, but it gave us an opportunity to play with something that was new at the time and to model things in a completely different way. And it worked. And things like pattern matching, for instance, that was so useful when matching and for the best match. I mean, it, the terminology itself, it's expressive enough that you just use it to describe what you were trying to say. And well, those were like my first experiences, what, what, in, what it means to do research in the computer engineer world. So you have a problem, no one really wants to solve it or knows how to solve this best. And you have this idea that may or may not work and you do a little prototype. And then that lived on to be a real system that was used for a number of years. And then came my, my PhD. So my PhD was using that experience from prototype to really full system used by the whole department for a number of years to manage hundreds of thousands of insurance policies and, and events and trying to formalize that and give the perspective of what things had functional programming put on top of the table that helped solve that problem so well and that we could learn from and, and apply to, to other experiences. And in the panel of that PhD, someone asked, had Erlang had types as in Haskell, would your work have been easier or harder? It was a really, really tricky question because I never was, as a student, I loved Erlang more than OCaml because, of course, types are hard. And you're a student and you really like it when things work and the easier you can get them to work, the better. And sometimes, uh, yes, especially with recursion and stuff, types are not that friendly, so to speak. So, of course, there's a, a benefit on having them. And uh, I mean, we will be fools not to acknowledge that because we do use dialyzer and we, we do use a, no a number of tools that help us catch things that should we have to specify in a really strong way, the types of everything we, do we don't have. But I really like the, co the compromise that we've reached within the Erlang and Elixir communities in that regard. I mean, we do have the tools for when something really needs to be more carefully looked at, but we also have the opportunity not to be really bound and forced to have to specify everything when we really want to really quickly prototype something or just have situations that are not specific enough when you f first face them. Maybe later on, you really know what types would have been, but at the beginning, when you start working, you don't know them yet. And, and that allows for a more flexible day-to-day -day approach, I would say. And you mentioned your PhD going. Does that mean you worked on that project and followed that through and worked for that company for a bit before you went to your PhD? Well, I always kept my relationship with the university. So the agreement had was that the company put some money and that was like a grant slash job offer that that came to me. And But I was a personnel of the university, not never was a, an employee of the company. You worked on that project for a little bit. Exactly. It, it allowed me to, to leave <laughs> from that after graduating and, and, and actually being able to, to pursue uh, the PhD. And that's where I was wondering, because I know some people will go in and go straight through like master's and PhD straight out. And then other people will go in, go into industry, do some stuff and realize there's a problem here. I could actually like I managed to somehow come across a job that has something weird and niche enough that you can do a PhD about it, too. 
And that's why I was wondering if you kind of kept all the way through or just you were with the university, but you were working for that company for a bit before you decided to say, okay, now it's PhD time, it sounds like. It could have been like you said, if the company was happy with the first prototype and that would be it because... Of course, they, they needed someone to, well, to back fees and, and to do a little bit of maintenance and a little bit of evolution. But then they were really ambitious and they really, really wanted to see the system grow. And then by the time my final degree project was ready, they wanted to add a bunch of stuff. They even mentioned at some point having a, a chat within the system. <laughs> so we were already thinking, uh, you know, well, chats or Erlang, check, of course. But yeah. If they hadn't been so ambitious, then it probably would have been like that. And and I, I'm pretty sure the company will have offered me a position because, I, I mean, I was the obvious choice. But it was also a little bit experience gathering or, or well, I, I wanted to experiment was what uh, it was like to work within the university in the research world. Because I had, I mean, as I said before, it was five years. So in the summer of the third to the fourth year and the fourth to the fifth year, I had already worked at different companies. So uh, one summer I had an internship programming video games for the machines that you see in, in bars and, and that sort of thing. I was in Delphi, actually, I think. And the uh, following summer, I was at a yeah, more regular consultancy company doing some stuff with systems and Linux boxes and, and the like. So I kind of already knew or had the taste of what it was like to work in the programming world in the, as, a, as a computer engineer. So yeah, I know I, I I have to finish my degree, but this is going to be, this is what the professional world is going to be like, most likely, right? But I had no idea what it was the teachers did when they were not in class with us. <laughs> I, had, I mean, there was a blank in my mind. And I was also curious about that. So I took the chance of following up on the final degree project that eventually became a PhD to because of that because I really wanted to I mean I've always been insecure in the sense of what may I have been missing (laughs) what may I miss if I don't explore this path and so before I left university for good that was my thinking at that point before I leave university for good I want to try this just in case (laughs) and the just in case uh, lasted 20 years so far and you said your PhD was what did functional programming bring to the table in that project yes Exactly. I mean, the title was more academic or more boring, but, but you summarized it very well. And those were your words, but what did functional programming bring to that project that was able to give enough for that PhD to be able to get you through that as well? At that point, there were a number of things that seem now pretty obvious or pretty straightforward that were not, I mean, they were in question. We were actually questioning the way that management software was being built. I mean, there was one way of doing that. You build your database and then you have your uh, data access objects to mirror those objects in your tables. And then you have your business logic on top of that. And everything is, it's supposed to be really concurrent and the stuff, but then it's not going to scale. But I mean, this was the early 2000s. So people were not seeing high scale as a problem yet. And we brought to the table a different way of doing that. See, you can model your data in a different way. And you can intertwine your your state that is going to be non-shared by anyone with this uh, notion of process. And this is going to allow you to build exactly the same logic in a different way. 
But that different way is going to be much better at scale. And actually things like pattern matching really match the logic in the user's mind when they're telling you what they have to find when they're looking for the best insurance to cover something. I mean, that was such a good match for what functional programming is all about. So you have a number of cases that you have to try when you do pattern matching. And when you record, well, you have a list of things and then you're going to try something or you're going to do something for each of them. And those reflections that, as I said, they seem straightforward or obvious 20 years later, but they were not at the beginning. We were, we were challenging actually people. And that was what amerited uh, a PhD, of course. <laughs> May not have been the case 20 years later, but it was at the time. Well, it still seems to challenge a bunch of that conceptions today in industry and things like that, even. You've gone deeper into the research. You did your PhD, you decide, this is what I want to do. I want to do research. I want to do teaching. What are some of the things you've taken away? What are some of the high-level research projects that you've brought forward? And also, you said at the beginning your experience of the indoctrination and being exposed to OCaml just even in the second year and reviewing that. Now you're in academic life, teaching and researching. Mm-hmm. When you go through, what, what does that look like? What is your view of how you do your research? What kind of research projects you get to pick and work on? And do any of those translate to the kind of stuff you're teaching? Does the teaching feed into the research? Because I know different People, and I've seen, was it Matthew Flat with the racket stuff? He talks about like, here's my one view of like, here's how different things feed into like, you got to do your academic minutia and your <laughs> stuff. You got to do your teaching. You got to do your research. Sometimes you're lucky that all fits in. What does Erlang and functional programming fit in with your world of academia and what you do with research and how you do teaching and how does, how does that all fit together for you? Well, I think one of the things that have helped me through the years to stay in academia is the fact that actually research within the BIM community is really oftentimes close to industry. Because I do really find it harsh and I don't think I will be able to really do the kind of, I don't know how to say, but really hardcore programming language research that some people do and very really big names in our in the functional community and the, and the declarative language community and things that are referenced to lots of us and then eventually become part of languages in some way, some way or another. But that requires a different taste for research. It's probably because how I became in contact with, with research from that angle of really applicable stuff, really a problem that needs to be solved that just no one has faced before. And it's a really, someone is already having that problem, right? So I think one of the things that I remember best from my first Erlang Factory and Erlang User Conference talks, because I was there talking about my, my PhD, and I became in contact with so many people in industry that were, it was so nice to see that, oh, well, this that you did, that could be useful for us. Or tell me a little bit more how you, how you model that part that has to do with the, with the insurance. I mean, they, they found connections to their, the systems that they were running at that point. So that was mind blowing for me. I mean, in academia, when, when you talk to other PhD students, the feeling is that no one else cares about your PhD, but you. I mean, they're usually so niche and so specific. 
But it was not the case for me. For me, it was different. I mean, I felt so welcome and, and people were so, so happy to see someone doing that kind of PhD that it was really encouraging. And then the people that were actually doing research were so approachable. I mean, within two years or three years, I went from knowing people like Simon Thompson or Thomas Arts or Young Hughes from like, oh, I've, I've read their papers. I mean, I went from that to, to sitting next to them in a conference and then to writing a paper with them after visiting them from three months. It was it was indescribable for me. And, and it's possible because... Of course, because of the size of the community, because we're even now after this number of years and at the, after these decades, it's a reasonably sized community. I mean, you've said it at the beginning, we see each other, we find each other time and time after time, because, well, there are not so many of us. I mean, if this was any other mainstream language, that would be impossible. I mean... If I have a student that is really fond of Scala, I cannot promise him that I can get him in touch with the creator of Scala. And and it's it's not such a different of magnitude, but you get the feeling, you get the idea. So that was really powerful. And then, of course, in other countries, it is not like that. But in Spain, it's really intertwined. I mean, if you really want to continue doing research, then you have to teach. I mean, there's no possibility. We don't have different profiles for people doing research and people doing teaching at the university. You always have the, the two roles. So it became kind of a wheel, as you say. First, looking for places where Erlang could actually be a teaching tool. And I found one like pretty much straightforward spot for Erlang in the software architecture course that I've been running for a number of years now. And you will say, why software architecture? Well, precisely for the reasons that we were talking about earlier. This is a fourth year course. So they are so, so JAMA minded <laughs> by the time they come here. And of course, they've seen client server and they've seen sort of layer architecture, but they've never seen really distributed architectures. They've never had to even program a small peer-to-peer -peer or a small publisher subscriber. And of course, doing that for me, with my background and with my experience, doing that, of course, you can do that in C. <laughs> and of course, you can do it in Java. But doing that in Erlang and in recent years, doing that in, in Elixir, I think it, not for everyone, but for many, it provides the same experience that I had as an student. It's like, whoa, I can do this. I can actually do this with this within one semester. And it's really, really good looking code and, and good looking system doing things that I, I had never imagined four months ago. And that's what I'm looking for. Because those, I mean, in my, in my experience and as a, a student and also as a teacher, because then when I go walking in the street and I find them, they remember those. Maybe they never end up with a job in the functional programming, or but but they do remember that they was cool. And maybe sometimes at some point, maybe they they are managers and they have one project where they can introduce that into their company. And that's what I'm going for. So that's on the one side. And then how the research fits into the teaching. That has gone more through the side of automatic validation, so automatic testing. I worked with, as I said before, with Thomas Arts and also John Hughes and, well, the, the people that work with them in property-based testing and there are a number of papers published there. And that also stuck with me. The fact that people should do 
wiser things than unit testing, <laughs> that there are ways that are also closer to what we do with functions in the functional programming paradigm. For me, there, there are similarities on, okay, you specify what you want to test. And, and you describe it and there's a property and then some machinery will turn that into lots of unit tests for you. So the other subject when where I use Erlang and Elixir and proper in this case, because that's the open source version of PBT that we have, it's a validation course. So they, they come there and they, they have no expectations of what language they're going to be using in the lab practices. And then they find this. And of course, at this point, they have rather powerful tools in Python, for instance, but then in that class, I'm going more for the concept. So they have to learn a number of techniques, but this is one of them. And this is the one that surprises them the most. <laughs> and at that point, they already know if they've seen me in the other <laughs> software architecture world, they already are not afraid anymore of the Erlang syntax and the Elixir syntax. And then it's just a tool. But the concept, then, then the research has come into the teaching because of the, of the actual technique. So you mentioned you might see them on the street and they're like, oh, that was so cool. How many of them actually curse you for showing <laughs> well, showing them the ability of Erlang? Because I know I've gotten spoiled by like learning Erlang. It's like, okay, now that you do stuff in AWS or wherever else, you're like, there's so much we're just <laughs> glossing over and ignoring that Erlang essentially puts in your face. Yeah, And Elixir hides a little bit, but with Erlang, it's like, here's your restart. Like, Elixir hides it away from you a little bit more with the supervision, but it's like when you do straight Erlang, it's like, what's your restart strategy? How are you going to do this? How are you going to exactly. do how are you going to do the correlation identifiers and know which message you're responding to? Like if you look at Francesco and Steve Vinoski's book, The Designing for Scalability, it's like, here's like 15 different, it's not quite 15, but here's a bunch <laughs> of different attempts of like, here's how you can just do a send and receive back and forth. And wait, nope, that's why it breaks. Exactly. So how many of these... I, there is the excitement of like, wow, this is awesome. I know it's feasible, but there's also yeah, that there's, like... There's always people like that. I wouldn't dare to give you a, a percentage of the classroom. And probably the ones that are belonging to this second category, they just cross the street when uh, when they see me <laughs> out there. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've got those comments also. There's always the people who are... I mean, they're students and I can relate to that experience. And, and you, there's a point when you're about to finish and that, that you feel that you know so much. And they, there's the, the kind of person that thinks they're so practical and that they're just valuing things in the computer science and the computer engineering world by the weight of it. So if there are, I don't know, 10,000 jobs that ask for Java, then Java must be the way to go. And they are not so much thinking about how, the benefits that they get from other things that they are going to learn and that they will stick in their minds one way or another. So those students, sometimes they, they confront you and they say, why are we using this? No one else is using this. And, and this is, I mean, this is not going to do nothing in my CV <laughs> in three months from now. But I must say, this was more the case before everyone knew that WhatsApp uses Erlang. And before we could list them all, but WhatsApp is always the, like, the big example. I was thinking more of the, you broke me. <laughs> kind of like the people who are getting exposed to functional languages. And it's like, <laughs> but I can't, like, I can't get a job now. The, I got to get Java. But now I've seen this. I've seen what Erlang gives me and Erlang architecture gives me. I'm broken now because of you kind of thing. Like, yes, it's awesome. It's amazing. 
but you broke me and now I'm jaded because I know what's out there, but I don't get to use it. Well, I have I have mixed feelings because I, I yeah, then that's the case. I, I have while I had had people saying to my face, this is useless, we shouldn't be using this language, I haven't had any experience that with a, a person that was brave enough to <laughs> to voice that thought of you've ruined me. <laughs> I'm sorry if there's only one out there and they're listening to this, I'm really sorry. But you should look for a remote job. <laughs> no, truly. We have a, a, s- a small set of companies companies around La Coruña that do things with Arlang, but we're still suffering from this secrecy, you know? I mean, even what we now can go to the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation website, for instance, or look around the code beam talks that have been through the years collected in the website, and we see the big and the small companies here and there that are using Erlang or Elixir. And in Spain and in Galicia and La Coruña, there are a few known names but there are others that are just not saying it, but they're using it. I mean, I try to, I know the people directly because either they have been in my class or they were my classmates. So I know them and I invite them over in my classroom so they can say the things within the class that they cannot say outside because sometimes just it's just a policy company. We don't say this. This is our golden tool. We don't share this secret. But that's also a problem from the university point of view, as someone that has to convince them, no, no, you actually really, trust me, you can find a very good job because there will be not so many of you really willing to working with this technology. But we're slowly getting there. I mean, it's, sometimes it reminds me of the open source philosophy. I mean, you have to believe in that. Secrecy is not going to protect you. <laughs> but sometimes yeah, companies believe in that and, and they're in the right, of course. <laughs> And you touched on it and the secrecy, sometimes it's secrecy. Sometimes it's, this is our secret sauce. We're not exposing it. Same thing. A couple of the Lisp companies have said like, nope, we're not telling people we're using the Lisp. Well, we're going to use Lisp and tell people we use Java or we're using Erlang and we just tell people we're using Java. So they think, Hey, whatever we can catch <laughs> up or, but then there's also the companies that go off and sell it. And it's a marketing side and it's not necessarily yeah. secret because it's a secret. It's secret because it's just these people whispering or shouting, <laughs> but nobody's listening. You're the crazy person shouting. I, it may be for good reason, but you're the p- crazy person out in the corner shouting, trying to get our attention. So we just ignore you. But now the Erling community has the Erling ecosystem foundation, which is there is a marketing branch of that I've seen, but then there's, that just seems a giant bigger marketing thing, both internal and external. Do you want to talk about, some of that, because you're on a couple of those committees, I believe, and then talk about what you're involved with in the foundation as well. I'm part of the um, education working group. And one of the things I would love to see is more contact amongst universities that are teaching Erlang. And I, and I know because the, my fellow colleagues in that working committee, some of them are teachers at other universities around the world that have, for a reason or another, come to the same place where I am, where we are stubborn enough to, against a lot, being using Erlang and Elixir. And some of them I didn't know before the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation existed and this working group was founded. So it's value in itself. There's value in itself in the working group existing already. But the tricky thing with, as I said before, when in academia and in Spain, as in many other countries, you have to combine these two things, the research and the teaching. And those are not always aligned. 
I mean, some, there's people sometimes doing research in area A and then the Erlang and Elixir fall in category B. So those are apart. And if you focus only on the academic events, you will never meet the Erlang community or the Elixir community because you, you don't really have something to tell them. And that will make as a side effect that you will not meet other academics doing research in a different thing, but sharing with you the teaching. In other words, it's really not common for academics to meet where the teaching overlaps. And that means that people teaching Erlang or Elixir may feel really alone. I mean, it's really difficult to find other universities that just Googling it may not be apparent because there are a lot of walls. I mean, for instance, at, we at the University of A Coruña, we use uh, Moodle as a, a platform. And that means that if you don't have a user, then you, you cannot really see the materials. And that was something, and we've talked about this uh, within our colleagues in the academia. Sometimes things come to serve a purpose, like, like we're going to make people's life easier. Like, well, we have a, a course management platform and people go there and their uh, subjects are listed and they have all the deadlines and blah, blah, blah. But then before that, everyone had, of course, they have their personal webpage and then they were, each one was different and you had to find them all. But at least that was open. I mean, any search engine could find that and you will look for materials or ideas on how to teach Erlang and you could find something. But as more and more universities go to this other model of having a platform for the studies, that becomes increasingly difficult. So we have to find other ways of exposing and sharing with, with our colleagues because otherwise it's also difficult to, I mean, I am a really convinced person. I mean, I would use Erlang and, and no, can, no one can say to me that I want. And now I'm a professor, so I'm, I, I'm more strongly in my chair. They're not, they're not going to move, move me from here. But if someone is starting at some other university and it finds it difficult and their context and their, their colleagues, they're saying, why are you so stubborn? Why do you want to use this? Just use Java or just use Scala or just use some other things. We as a community will be losing the opportunity. I mean, we will be losing those students being exposed to our technology, to our ecosystem. And that's a luxury I don't want to, <laughs> to, to have to endure. So the group for me is valuable in that sense. And then there's also, of course, the risk in academia is that we end up thinking that everyone working as a professional in the computer science, computer engineering, programming world, has to come to the university first. And that's not true. I mean, no, there are lots of ways people end up in a programming job. And sometimes they change careers, then sometimes they are self-taught, sometimes they go to a bootcamp. I mean, we have to also acknowledge all those feasible ways of becoming part of the community, so to speak. But also, if you come one way or the other, but there will be things that you will have to, or just because of the needs of the job you end up, you may need more information on OTP behaviors or more information on ECTO and how to speak to relational databases or how to speak to non-relational databases. There are lots of things. I mean, no one is going to know everything. And having a reliable source of information and say, oh, who has a course on this? Oh, what's the best way of teaching this with Erlang or teaching that with Elixir? That's, I think, one of the goals that the Education Working Group is born with at the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. And that's why I'm passionate about the, the work that we can do there. 
So I know other languages, and I think it probably started with Ruby, had the Ruby bridge, and then like there's Closure Bridge, and a couple of these others have done it. And I know Erlang Solutions has done some Erlang trainings, and I know there was the Simon Thompson and Joe Armstrong little intro to Erlang videos that they did with French and Francesco is part of that. Is there any plans that you can talk about at this point of trying to have semi-open courseware, even if it's just here's an outline, here's a structure that people can go off and take and help do the sales on their side, whether it's a senior developer in their company trying to get other people pointed at it or more official kind of open courseware that's you're like, okay, we're all going to figure out how we're going to put this lesson together and (laughs) go video present it and figure out how to ask for forgiveness from the university for doing this. (laughs) What other kinds of stuff are you all looking at doing with the academic side and essentially evangelizing Erlang and just functional programming in general? Well, I think there are a few of each of the things that you that you were pointing to. I know for a fact, even though I cannot talk about <laughs> about it a lot, that there are people in the group that have done this experiment with some other parties of, say, I'm going to just record a really simple course, very much like the one by Francesco and Simon Thompson and, and even Joe Armstrong, because those those were close. Of course, you had to enroll at that university or you have to hire Erlang Solutions. And well, that, that may be a very good way for companies or for people with the resources, but we also want to reach other people that may not have the resources. And in that regard, there's also the feeling of not reinventing the wheel. So something that is working really well, you were mentioning Closer Bridge and Ruby Bridge. I think something that is working really good, at least for the Elixir track and the Erlang track, is not so popular, but it's getting there, is exorcism. And there are a number of people in the uh, education working group that are acting as mentors in exorcism. And I have to confess, I've done the track to get ideas for my classes because some of the exercises are really, they're really appealing. I mean, there's a huge effort within the exorcism community to find good ways of conveying really specific topics. And as a teacher, as and, and also a little bit as a researcher, I find it really formative, this whole map of concepts. So how you uncover, say, pattern matching, and that will open for you the door to tail recursion. And, and that kind of mind map, I find it really, really valuable. So there are lots of things and, and efforts going on that Instead of just copying them or, or replicating them, it makes more sense just to contribute directly to them. And we're getting close on time. I know we want to talk about the code being light. Is there anything else that we want to pitch for the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation in general or just other call to actions around that in education and academia and teaching and spreading the knowledge that you want to point out? or just any other research projects that you're going on around this topic that says, look, we're doing decent. This is the kind of stuff we want help with around this kind of stuff of helping to evangelize and spread the knowledge as well. Is there anything that we'd be remiss if we didn't point out where we're kind of talking about the advocation and training up of people to spread the word of functional programming and Erlang specifically? I think one of the things that the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is more effectively acting upon these days is actually allowing people to physically attend the events that are organized and also 
helping people to organize events, local events, because of course, in the, and after two years of pandemic, in still, it feels a little bit unrealistic to, to start traveling all around the world. And also there's a lot of value in, in fostering local communities. And we've seen for me, there's a great example on the Brazilian community, of course, for obvious reasons in the case of, of Elixir. But I think that they, they have a personality of their own. And that's very valuable also because no one will speak better to the local ecosystems of companies that people who are already there and preaching, as you were saying, from a close position is much more effective than, than preaching from Stockholm, <laughs> for instance. And I think the airline ecosystem in a way is making visible for the airline community as a whole things that people and individuals have been doing for quite a number of years. And not only Francesco with, with his teaching experiences and experience in universities, but it's now 10 years. Yes, 10 years. So in 2012, we had in A Coruña, one of the first Erlang camps, I think it was not the first, but the second, but one of the first outside the U.S., so some people that, that uh, listen to us may have heard of the Erlang Camp. And th this was the authors of Erlang OTP in Action, the book. They wrote the book to preach, actually, of course. And then they felt that writing the book was not enough. So they put together a two-day training and they were offering all around the, the U.S. And I became in contact with them. I don't remember if it was an Erlang User Conference or an Eklan Factory, but it was one of these events. And then I say, hey, I want you to come and, and do this in A Coruña. And now that we are in the 10th year anniversary of that, we are going to have something that we were we're already late in doing because there are a number of Godbin lights already that have been done in a number of cities around the globe. And it was about time that we had one in La Coruña. And it's going to be this year on June 11th. And we're starting already to confirm our speakers and you should check our media. And of course, you will find out because one of the things about the Erlang community that we were saying before is that we know each other, so it will get to you. I mean, if you follow Francesco, it will, you will find it. If you follow the Codebeam Twitter account, you will find it because we're, yeah, you cannot escape the cool things that happen in our community. <laughs> yeah, I managed to get to one of the Erlang camps by Martin and Eric down in Austin. And I was like, I'm going down there. I'm making it. And then I actually got to see and meet Dave Thomas because that was the early days of Elixir and I don't know if he's actually on the Ecosystem Foundation, but I know he's took Elixir. He's like, this is the language I want because I've tried to sell functional programming. <laughs> and like, this is the one that works in his view of trying to teach it. But it was one of those got, yeah, got to talk to them, got to meet them, have that conversation about it and just help dig into understanding like, yeah, again, Erling broke me on some of this stuff. It's like, I can see stuff <laughs> that, that we're not doing. But yeah, look forward to Codebeam Light and seeing the presentations. I know some of them managed to get their sessions recorded and published after the fact. Is the plan to try and have recordings for those that those of us who aren't going to make it might be able to snag? Or is this going to be, we'd like to, but we don't think we're going to be able to do this unless we get some nice <laughs> sponsorships to get people to cover that? We have the infrastructure, but it will all, uh, of course, it will amount to how many sponsorships we're able to gather. So, of course, first of all, is allowing people to come and speak. So we're covering either us or the companies. That's a way of sponsoring our Codebean Light, covering for the cost of travelers, of the speakers and their accommodation. And then, of course, we want to 
have people, at least within Spain, because lights go for the local community, so that, that, that makes sense. People in underrepresented groups that want to come, they shouldn't not be able to come. So that will be our main focus. But then, as I say, the good thing at the, at the, the university, uh, which will be our venue, is that we have the infrastructure. Uh, so if we can pile up enough money, we will be able to, to record it and, uh, and have it for the future. So if you know a company that may be interested in sponsoring Codebean Light Coruña, let them talk to me, please. <laughs> and I'll put that call in the show notes for anybody who wants to sponsor. But I know sometimes it's, we don't even have the infrastructure, so we have to essentially rent the infrastructure too, or get somebody just there with their little handheld camera <laughs> or phone on a tri- or iPad or whatever it is now on a mount and just kind of hit record and you get a basic recording versus, as you said, if you've got infrastructure for recording it in. Yes. Now, this is a beautiful auditorium, so we, we just need the to pay the people, <laughs> of course, but people need to eat. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the editing and everything else that it exactly, takes to put yes. something the hours, together. Besides the post-processing, just, exactly. Yeah. We covered a lot. We covered the ecosystem foundation. We talked about your teaching, your research, a lot about your background. We talked about the code beam light you're getting in, and I will help spread the word. And I'm sure, as you mentioned, the other places in the Erlang system will do it, but is there anything we haven't covered? Is there any other research projects or stuff you want to let people know about or point people to or call to actions? Is there anything else that we'd be remiss if I let you go and we didn't touch on it? Well, there's one thing I would like to mention, because we've, we've mentioned the, the Erlang user conferences and the Erlang factories, nowadays code beams, but we haven't mentioned the Erlang workshop. Which, of course, as an academic, if I didn't do, all my fellow Beamers academics will say, hey, come on. <laughs> so this is like the academic event, which researchers doing their research within publish their papers every year. And there's something special about the Erlang workshop that I haven't seen in other communities that might be out there. But this was an initiative that uh, I think we have had for a couple of years already, which is pairing up an academic and a practitioner to present something that has happened within the industry and give value to the research that happens within industry because it does happen. I mean, it's not only at the universities that research happens and that's not the case either for the Bing community. And that has proven to be so successful. I mean, every year that we've had this possibility uh, of uh, say, if you have something in your job, and uh, that you don't, you're not sure it qualifies as research. You would like to try. Uh, we pair that person up with an academic and we have had, as I say, for a couple of years, very good papers presenting actual research taking place in industry at the Erlang workshop. And of course, those eventually made their way to the code beams because uh, in the end, it's people who are more familiar with the professional events than the academic events, but it also gives value to the that want to live close to the practice, close to the the industry, which for me, as you've heard uh, through the interview, is a really core value. And it's also one of the things that I'm most proud of because I did it with a with someone who I can call a friend already, I think. And you probably all are gonna know who is Brujo. And this was my case with him and the last paper that we published at the Language Shop last year. And it was about Hank, which is of course a tool that if you're not using, 
you should be using because it will help you find the dead code in your projects. And that's more valuable the larger your project is. And it's a river plugin, as he always says. So there's no excuse for not just plugging it to your CI. <laughs> and and it's a, it could have been just that, a tool that Brujo very skillfully engineered and published and people will use it and that's it. But it solves a problem in a really systematic and thorough way. And there was a lot of abstract thinking devoted to that abstract problem before it became a tool. And that was worth spreading the word the word about in academic language, so to speak. So that's something that, that uh, yes, I just wanted to put out there for people to realize that we're not that apart. And I think if anywhere, the Vim community is one place where the academics and the practitioners are closer than in anywhere else. And I take proud on that. So where can people find you? Where's the best place for people to follow along, keep track, keep an eye on what you're doing, keep up to date? I'm sure there's go to the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation and watch some of that stuff, but that's the broader system and you're going to be advocating there some, I'm sure too. Where can people find you, follow along, keep up to date, go back, find out more about you? What's the best place for people to track you down? I think the easiest is nowadays is probably Twitter. I'm Laura M. Castro there. And if not, just a good old email. <laughs> that That's L. Castro, L from Laura Castro at udc.so.gal. Those both uh, equally work. And then do you have any upcoming appearances? We mentioned the Codebeam light. Are there yes. any other presentations and things for people to watch out for? I know beforehand we talked about, I thought I saw you on one of the code beams and you're like, nope, can't make it because we got code beam light. Exactly. Is there any other places that you've got either working on attending for people who are going to make it and want to meet you probably the first time or meet you and just now that they've heard you or watch for your presentations to come out later, any other upcoming appearances you want to plug? I was really, really excited because I was preparing this tutorial and hands-on practice on property-based testing for the uh, code being Stockholm that, uh, well, uh, for after the, the relocation updates, uh, I couldn't make it, but eventually it will happen. I mean, I've promised that to Francesco and, and the code being people, so it, it will happen. So that's something to look forward to. And then, of course, uh, now I'm 100% devoted to the preparation, the, the whole organization of code being light a Coruña. So people living in Galicia, Spain, or close enough that they can travel here, they should really consider it because we're gathering an amazing panel of speakers. And if you follow me on Twitter, then you will find out. And I'll get your Twitter and just contact so people can follow you and find out and just keep track of that added to the show notes so they can go back and check and not have to worry about like <laughs> finding where we mentioned it in the episode. Yeah, of course, I'm also on the Slack channel of Erlang and Elixir, and there's also a couple of Spanish-speaking people who are really, which are really, really quiet. So if people want to chat there, that's fine. And I'm also part of the Telegram uh, Elixir groups, and both the English and the Spanish, and most prominently the Elixir women who are on Telegram. So if there are any developers identifying themselves as, as women, they should look us up on Telegram. Sounds good. And I'll get some of those added. I'll maybe trickier to find some of the other ones, but I'll get the basics added so people can find you. I'll at least put notes to where they can find you and find it if I can't find the links myself. Perfect. 
I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Laura, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure finding out more about you, getting a good understanding of how the research in academia fits together and education and everything else you're doing with the CodeBeam and Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. You are most welcome. It's been my absolute pleasure. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.